Like practically every other cult classic, the French thriller Diva was almost stillborn. Here is the film's co-writer and director Jean-Jacques Benix, recalling the trials of its initial release in 1981. So this, this movie was not doing well at all. Mm -hmm. The critics were, French critics were terrible. Mm -hmm. So I thought I had made two films for the price of one, my first and my last. Mm -hmm. And slowly it built up after one year and mm -hmm. made a, a huge success. It is something that couldn't happen today. Right. Because today, you know, a film goes out and two hours later it's they know over. it's over. Prior to Diva, Benix had directed just one short film, Le Chien de Monsieur Michel. But for his debut, he had the good fortune to secure the backing of revered producer Serge Silberman. Born in 1917 in Vodge, when it was still part of the Russian Empire, Silberman was a Holocaust survivor who, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, produced for the likes of Jean-Pierre Melville, Jacques Becker, René Clément and Louis Bunuel. And then, in the 1980s, he went on to produce Akira Kurosawa's final masterpiece, Ran. Here is Silberman at the 1973 Academy Awards, receiving on behalf of Bunuel the Best Foreign Language Oscar for the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yes, my English also, the speech will be very short. First, thanks to Louis Bunuel that I accepted to make the picture. And then I would like to thank the thank to 20th Century Fox who helped me to make the picture known, especially here in the United States. Thanks to you all and to the Academy. Benix and fellow screenwriter Jean Van Ham adapted Diva from a novel by Daniel Odier, who wrote under the pen name of Delacorta. Diva was just one in a series of Delacorta stories, and while they were popular in France in the late 70s and early 80s, the setup for Diva may sound familiar. It opens with a concert. As the celebrated singer Cynthia Hawkins, played by Wilhelmina Viggins Fernandez, takes to the stage, one of her most devoted admirers, Jules, played by Frédéric André, secretly records a performance. The next day, a sex worker, Nadia, played by Chantal Doraz, is chased by a pair of thugs and just before she is killed, she manages to slip into Jules' motorcycle pouch, a cassette, incriminating the chief of police as the head of a sex trafficking ring. Hmm, where have we seen the likes of that before? It is reminiscent of the setup for Alfred Hitchcock's 1935 adaptation of John Buchan's 1915 spy novel, The 39 Steps. I say Hitchcock's adaptation because, as the master of suspense so often did, he changed several important details of someone else's story in order to make his telling of it a uniquely cinematic experience. Completely unlike Buchan's novel, the film opens in a musical. A gunshot rings out and all the patrons flee in panic. A distressed woman, Annabel Smith, played by Lucy Mannheim, approaches a complete stranger, Richard Hannay, played by Robert Donat, and asks him to take her home to his apartment. Hello, Nervy. Have checked me those shots tonight. I fired those shots. You what? Yes, to create a diversion. You see, I had to get away from the theater quickly. There were two men there who wanted to kill me.
Another variation on this is Sam Fuller's terrific 1953 thriller, Pickup on South Street. That starts with a pickpocket, Skip McCoy, played by Richard Whitmark, stealing a passenger's purse on a crowded New York subway. Unbeknownst to McCoy, the purse contains microfilm of top-secret government information. We've been following this girl for months, and just as we were about to grab a top red agent receiving the film from her, you broke up the ball game. Now, can't you see how important this is? We just want your cooperation, and the charges against you will be dropped. Isn't that right, Captain? You know, I'd like to make this rap stick, but what he's got to do is more important. Well, you boys are talking in the wrong corner. I'm just a guy keeping my hands in my own pockets. If you refuse to cooperate, you'll be as guilty as the traitors that gave Stalin the A-bar. So, Diva is a pastiche of several narrative devices, and after that, quotes liberally from other films. The giant jigsaw is from Citizen Kane. There is a murder reminiscent of Les Enfants de Paradis. The chase to the metro is the lift from the third man, while a young man tries to charm a young woman on the Champs-Élysées. New York Herald Tribune! Ordinarily, you could dismiss this as the film's positive originality. But given that the film's subtext examines originality and imitation, perhaps authenticity and forgery, phoniness, deception and lies is what it's really about. Yes, it is a thriller, so you would expect such emotional underpinnings. But Diva is not necessarily an emotional film. Instead, it is quite philosophical. For decades, French cinema had been under the influence of existentialism. From Marcel Carney's Le Jour Célève in 1938, Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Silence de la Mer in 1949, Henri-Georges Clouseau's The Wages of Fear in 1953, right through to Jean-Luc Godard's Vivre sa Vie in 1962, and Marco Ferreri's La Grande Bouffe 11 years later. But in Diva, there is little sign of Sartre, Camus or Levinas. Instead, it is Jean-Paul Baudrillard and postmodernism that pervades the plot. And since originality is central to the postmodernist malaise, you can hardly make an argument against its essence without including its elements. There is nothing new, and even that isn't original. You can find that quote in the Bible, Ecclesiastics chapter 1 verse 9. As the second millennium was coming to a close, culture found itself swimming in a sea of what Baudrillard called simulacra and simulation. Lost in a tide of old images, old quotes and old ideas, all repositioned amid familiar stories so that neither had any authenticity. Now apply that to the diva of the title, Cynthia Hawkins. She is an artist of such unique talent and is so devoted to the purity of her voice that she refuses to record in the studio. If you want to hear her, you can only do so live and in person because that particular performance will never happen again. But into one of her live performances comes young Jules, who has smuggled inside his bag an agro recording device. That idea of recording something unique is replicated in the film's parallel plot, 
where Nadia has given testimony on a tape incriminating the chief of police. So, a young man has made a secret recording a woman once destroyed, while another woman has made her own secret recording another man once destroyed. One tape is stolen, the other misplaced, and both are highly sought after. You have two cops pursuing Jules, while two criminals are also hunting for him. And that is not to mention the pair of Taiwanese counterfeiters in pursuit of the concert recording. As those plots intertwine, Benix presents Paris as a labyrinth, a network of underground and overground mazes, from which it is nearly impossible to escape. Even the music gets in on the act, with the film's composer Vladimir Kozma presenting a pastiche of Eric Satie's Nocienne. So, no matter where you are in the film, that visual and aural theme is, yes, repeated and echoed by way of mirrors and chambers, that repeatedly reflect and rebound back into the story, so eventually almost everyone is lost in the endless repetitions. The only character who is literally and figuratively above it all is Serge Gorodish. Played by Richard Borringer, Gorodish lives in a renovated warehouse that defies all the other locations in the story. He is the film's epitome of cool, simply because he is not invested in phoniness, or to use another word, duplicity. Where everyone drives around Paris in mass-produced guanos and mopeds, Gardish prefers a white, vintage 1954 Citroen 11 traction. Here is a man from a different time, if not place. The walls, floors and ceilings of his warehouse are all painted black. Arrhythmical ambient music plays through the lofted space, and amidst it all, a wave machine slowly and endlessly plays with time. Time is something Gardish has plenty of. He is tackling an enormous jigsaw puzzle depicting a giant wave. And while making lunch, he talks in Zen couplets, explaining the essence of buttering your baguette. In philosophical terms, Gardish is a phenomenologist. He studies experience and consciousness, and as such, he can appreciate the unique individuality of things. And so does he, and only he, who can navigate Paris's vast labyrinth. So knowing as Gardish that he has not just one, but two identical citrons, just in case the first one. Lit by future Oscar-winning cinematographer Philippe Rousselot, Diva enjoys a very slick visual treatment. The camera elegantly swoons and slides through settings dominated by cool blues and rousing reds. And many of those locations are an interesting mix of wealth and austerity, high culture with spaces filled with broken machinery. Even the setting for Hawkins' opening performance is less an opera house than it is an old odium, one civic order away from being condemned. One of the most striking images in the film is when a motorcycle helmet is placed on the head of a mannequin. It may look novel, but you know it is familiar, because, made from plastic and with its truncated arms, the mannequin is a 20th century, bargain basement, mass-produced, improvised send-up of the Venus de Milo. But it is because of that that the film is filled with images that are more stylistic than realistic, 
that French critics dismissed Benix and its film. Ever since the late 50s and early 60s, when the Nouvelle Vague ushered in the likes of François Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard and Claude Chabrol, French cinema had been decidedly realist. And given that Truffaut, Godard and Chabrol had all been critics at Cahiers de Cinéma, it would only follow that later critics would deem it their duty to be the gatekeepers of future French cinema. But where Truffaut, Godard and Chabrol had all railed against what they dismissed as le cinéma de papa, the 1970s generation of critics were all too ready to punish the cinema of youth. Which is one of the reasons why Diva is rather important. Unwittingly, Benix's film held loose in the stranglehold critics held over French directors. In their arguments, historians and critics claimed that Diva ushered in what Raphael Bassan called cinema de look. But although Diva came out in 1981, it took Bassan until 1989 to coin that phrase by which time he could only bracket three filmmakers within that category. Besides Benix, there was Luc Besson, who in the 80s directed The Last Battle, Subway and The Big Blue, and then Leas Carax, who made Boy Meets Girl and Mauvais Sang. Which means that of those three directors, by the end of the decade, they had collectively made all of nine films. Is that enough to describe it as a dominant movement? Hardly. Instead, it only goes to show that sometimes Critics are more interested in petty put-downs than they are in appreciating cinema. I said earlier that Diva is more about ideas than emotions, and I think the cause of that is the casting. The lead character, Jules, is played by Frédéric André. But although he could easily pass as a young Alain Delon, he simply does not have Delon's charisma and so the centre of the story is completely lacking emotional weight. The other actors around him do their best to fill in the void. Besides Richard Boringer, there is Theanne Lou, who plays the young rollerblading Alba, as well as Gérard Damon's henchman, Lantillet, and his sidekick, Le Curé, played by Dominique Pignon. But even then, they are all only ciphers. Which leaves us with Cynthia Hawkins. It is said that she was based on American opera singer Jesse Norman. But, for whatever reason, Benix and Silverman decided to cast Wilhelmina Wiggins Fernandez. But, in the end, the decision worked out. Fernandez not only had the experience to play the title role, she had the unique charisma to carry it off as well. And, as for her voice, it really is one of a kind. (laughs) 